Would you tell us your, your first uh, experiences in photography, Mr. Willett? Well, my first experience was in St. Petersburg, Florida. My brother was Brother Edwin, who had uh, graduated from Effingham, Illinois, as a photographer. Had set up a studio, he called it the Edwin's Studio, Edwin Willett. And when I arrived there, he was making all kinds of commercial pictures, portraits, and even doing photo finishing. So my first work was to do some Kodak finishing. And uh, I wasn't too well informed. He wasn't too interested in telling me. I did the best I could at the time, and it seemed to be satisfactory to the customers that he had. But I, I actually was then more interested in sign painting, so I was studying uh, a book on sign painting at that time. And then uh, how did you get into motion pictures? Well, <clears throat> before I got into motion pictures, uh, I went through several phases, and I was in the flag and bunting decorating business. I had been... I had saved a few hundred dollars, and I was taken north as far as St. Louis from Deland, Florida, <coughs> which is what I consider my home, even though I was born in Stamford, Connecticut. And uh, I, who had always been very fond of watermelon, <laughs> ate too many watermelons, and uh, I reached the point of the doctors called anemia. So I wired my very fine brother, C.A. Alfred, Doc Willett. And Doc was then with, with the interested with the imp company with Carl Emley. He had left Vitagraph. <clears throat> and uh, as I remember it correctly, he was both the studio and laboratory supervisor. He was both producer and in charge of all the photographic processes that went on from the photographing to the completion of the pictures. And he gave me <coughs> just uh, one telegram. He said, if you want to come to New York, I'll send you the money, and he did. It was in St. Louis, and I then joined him in New York. And after waiting around for a period of time, he asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, I'd like to be an artist. And he says, well, to make it more practical, why don't you come down in the still room of the imp uh, studio? <coughs> I accepted that. And my first work was to make tests of the film as the cameraman and com men completed a 200-foot roll, which was put in a wooden box. Uh, at, that, uh, at that time, our longest film was 200 feet.
and I would get the the uh, film and tear. There was always a test on the end. I'd tear off the the test and develop it and go out and to the stage and say it was good or it wasn't good. They took my word for it. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> it looked all right to me from Kodak work that I'd had. And then when the still pictures had to be made, I became the still photographer. I had to do the photographing of the stills, the developing of the plates, and the making of the prints. I didn't make the quantity prints. I don't know where they got the quantity prints because I only made samples and uh, turned it over to uh, the company to uh, publicity department to take care of. Excuse me, Mr. Bullitt. At what point um, during the production would you make a still? <clears throat> well, I usually waiting for the cameraman to finish his, his uh, scenes mm -hmm. and his reel, his roll of film. And uh, when I saw something that looked like it might be interesting, I'd say, let me have a still of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the... Would you set up right alongside him then? Or no, there was, these were all set separately. After they'd finished the scene, mm -hmm. we'd, we were using then a 5-7 uh, camera. Mm -hmm. And we'd... No, using an 8-10 camera then. Later we used 5-7. Use an 8 to 10 camera, and uh, they'd pose the scene again for me, mm -hmm. which was uh, partly done by the director and partly by myself. Mm -hmm. This was about what year? Do you recall it as being? Uh, 1910. 1910. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Imp Studio, as you said, was in New York. Imp. Yes. It was in an old face powder factory. <laughs> Had our, we, we were always brought to, that was brought to our attention because there was quite a little of the talcum still left around. Then did you continue for uh, several years and uh, doing this kind of work? Or did you get <coughs> no, things moved a lot. Things moved a lot rapid, more rapidly then because it was a new business, and uh, I don't know. I think I probably was in there for six months, mm -hmm. and then I. Uh, they, they brought a, Carl Emley brought his, his uh, nephew out from uh, Germany, Julius, Julius Bernheim, I think it was, mm -hmm. Julius Bernheim, and um, he, uh, Mr. Lemley came over and asked me, he says, Irvin, will you show Julius how to make the tests and take the pictures? I said, I'll do the best I can. And uh, so I took him in to the, to the dark room, and uh, these, the, the um, film boxes which we had were closed with an eccentric uh, that was that had a slot in it. Mm -hmm. The slot just about fit at 25 cent piece. Mm -hmm. So I took Julius in and I said, he could speak very little English. And uh, I tried to show him and I, I said, now Julius, 
if you'll take a quarter and put it in this slot. And Julius stopped me for a moment, and he said, he looked at the slot, and he said, fate them in it, Mr. Villet. He says, wouldn't a five-cents piece do? <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, a five-cent piece would turn it just as well as a quarter, and mm. he saved 20 cents. <laughs> and I think uh, that uh, he's probably been a great success financially that way, but as a laboratory man or as a darkroom assistant, he was a complete failure. Did, uh, when did the trip to uh, Cuba occur? Was that the next high spot in your, your imp experience? Or yes. Or things that came in between? No. Uh, you see, the, uh, the uh, general, uh, general Film Company was very powerful then. They had what they called patents, and, and uh, imp was Independent Motion Picture Company, meaning that we were independent of the trust. <laughs> yes. And it was quite a battle between the trust and the the independence. Mm -hmm. Carl Emley was the head of the independence, and my brother, who had left the trust, also was an independent, giving him assurance all along that that what he did was safe. But uh, when it came to a point where we had to lay a, a, a revolver, a gun, on top of our cameras when we wanted to shoot a, a picture outside of the studio, and then uh, uh, Mr. Lamley thought we were taking chances, so he uh, he felt we ought perhaps for them for a while at least get out of New York, <clears throat> and and it was planned to take Mary Pickford and Lottie and Jack and the whole crew, including our property man, as uh, cockeyed uh, Ben Turpin. Ben Turpin. He was our prop man then, and and the directors and so forth, including myself. I carried film. I had to sneak it out for some reason. I don't know what it was. I think it was something to do with the um, whether there was any duties on it or what. But I know I had to carry film. It's been a long while ago. Yes, I know. And uh, <laughs> I had to carry this film. I know that was one of my jobs going down to Cuba was to get film to them. Uh, because it seemed that Eastman was afraid to deal with the independence, and yet Eastman wanted to encourage independence because they knew then that uh, it meant more business if everybody could make pictures. So some way or another, my brother got this film, gave it to me, and he says, you go on down there. They left first. And so I did, <coughs> and I took this. Uh, I wasn't then a, a, a photographer with them, but I went as a messenger, really, to Cuba, and I, I brought the, the film down. It was after the company had left. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed Cuba very much. Do you remember much about uh, working there, what the conditions were, and so forth? No, the first trip I don't remember too much, except that I know there was a man, J. Parker Reed, who was the interpreter that they had hired, and uh, he seemed to speak Spanish better than the Spaniards did. And we got just about anything that we wanted. The the place was ours. Who was doing most of the direction then? Was one man doing the direction? Was it Ince then or not? No, Ince wasn't with us at all then. Ince didn't come into the company until uh, oh, uh, till after we got back to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Ince was 
from the stage. And uh, I, I can remember when my brother gave him his first job, he wanted, he was, I guess, broke, as we call it, on the mm -hmm. stage. And so they, they had to take off a, a dead soldier, and uh, literally, and uh, said, well, Tom can play that. So they gave Tom the job of lying on the stretcher, and they carried him off, and they got five dollars. <laughs> Was this a uh, Civil War affair? No, oh, I couldn't tell you that. Life is past beyond that <laughs> point. Then how does it go from here? Then you came back to New York and... Came uh, back to New York, and uh, uh, then Adolf Zucker was trying to make a deal with, with uh, Mary Pickford, and we had a little... I know there was some difficulty. I wasn't in on the business side mm -hmm. of this at all. I was still working in my dark room making with Prince and mm -hmm. making the tests for the cameramen. Uh, Smallwood was one of the cameramen, then uh, Ray Smallwood, and uh, I'd I'd uh, become uh, more interested in my work than the business, so uh, actually uh, nothing happened until. This breakup where my brother left and went with New York Motion, and uh, <clears throat> and they put uh, they, in my place they put this Julius Bernheim mm, yes. as I mentioned. So uh, I was out of a job very soon, and my brother asked me to come over to the Bowman Kessler Laboratory, the New York Motion Picture Company, which uh, my brother had set up in the meantime after he had left. Lemley, and uh, so I went over there to do the uh, titles, I think it was, mm -hmm. photograph the titles. Mm -hmm. How was that done? Could you tell us a little bit about photographing the titles? <coughs> I think that's an interesting point, and I don't believe it's been covered in any of these tapes. Well, uh, it was all new to me, but... Uh, I realized that there was a lot of film being used on titles and nothing in it. So the first illustrated title that ever made, I think, was one of some kind of a picture that had to do with shooting of guns. And uh, as I can remember faintly now, I had uh, made drawings of this cannon on the title and it shot, and I showed the trajectile going over the picture at the same, uh, with a double exposure of the of the title, which was very simple because the title lettering was white and the background of the title was black, so there was no difficulty. And uh, that was my main title, and I had this slight illustration in it. I think it was while you were with New York Motion Picture Company that there was this difficulty with Universal, wasn't there, when they m marched on the, attempted <coughs> to take command of the laboratory? Yes, Tell us about uh, that. well, I arrived there early one morning, and and uh, I'd no sooner gotten in than here came uh, some real honest-to-goodness gunmen demanding their entrance in. We were on the second floor, and they demanded their entrance. In fact, the matter, they shot their way in, and there were bullet holes all over the place. 
I didn't know where I was going or what was happening. But in some manner, and that too isn't distinct, we managed to get them out of the place. And uh, we saved the fort. Uh, that was the first time, but I had another instance, which I'll be glad to tell you later, oh. <laughs> which uh, after we got to California. Oh, we're still, we're still in New York. Oh, yes, still in New York. Yeah. Now, in New York, uh, we used to make uh, the titles for the, uh, well, first, I'm a little ahead of myself. When we first got there, uh, my brother Doc, <coughs> who was in charge, Doc's his nickname, Alfred, as we know him, had Tom Ince come over, and he suggested to Tom that he get in touch with Kessler, of Kessler and Bowman, and see if, uh, if he couldn't get a job to make the westerns that they were then planning to make or making on the west coast. So, um, uh, I can remember rather distinctly the incident in which Tom was was still without funds. He was just sort of carrying himself along, and Doc sported a very fine diamond ring. And he said, "You know, uh, Addie Kessler is a is a gambler at heart, and I think uh, Tom, if you put this ring on and go over there and talk to Addie, I think you'll get the job." So he slipped the big diamond ring off of his hand and put it on Tom Ince's hand and Tom went over there and 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 got the job. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of Tom Ince. Tom Ince went out to the coast then and started making pictures and was exceedingly successful. His westerns, they were all two-reelers at the time, were very, very good as I remember them, and I think maybe for today, uh, for still, uh, for uh, silent pictures, they would stand up. They still look good. Yes. yes. Some of them at the Eastman House. <clears throat> so, um, uh, I, I think that Tom felt sort of obligated to my brother, and at uh, a later date, he sent for me, but, but prior to that, Max Sennett came into the studio. And Mac had an idea of making some comedies. Uh, he wanted to call them Keystone Comedies. Why he wanted the Keystone, I don't know. Maybe he, somebody in the family was born in Pennsylvania or something. <laughs> but uh, he wanted to, to make Keystone Comedies, and he had uh, Mabel Norman and F Ford. Sterling. Sterling. Yeah. Ford Sterling. And... Um, Oh, gosh, I can't think of their names now because I've sort of made a business of forgetting the past, and it's I difficult to remember. I think Senate himself used to act in the Senate, yes, he played, he played a, a policeman. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so uh, in, I was doing all the, the title work with the camera, and Mac came over to me and says, uh, do you know how to run them? You know how to run the camera, don't you, Irvin? I said, certainly I know how to run the camera. He said, well, I've got a Russian photographer here that I would, uh, he's a, I know he's an excellent photographer, but he doesn't know anything about the motion picture camera. If, would you go out with us and show him how to run the camera 
And then we, we want him for our cameraman to take back to the coast with us because we hope to go back to there. So um, I, I, I was looking for any opportunity that might be to advance me and photograph me or to get with the company because actually that's where I wanted to be in the dra dramatic part of it. And uh, so I took uh, the old man out. I forget his name now, but I could if it's interesting, could find it. I know Max Sennett remembers him very well because I was talking about him here a few months ago when I was talking to Max. He remembers the old Russian. Couldn't speak English very well. And he was a good photographer. And I did tell him what I knew about it. So the first picture, I didn't know too much about photography exterior. So we had the, I set up my camera and everything, and I'd say, now, what would you shoot this at? And he'd tell me, and I'd say, all right, now we'll try it. And I'd stop the thing down, to the lens down to what he suggested, and then I'd grind off. It's about 14, 16 pictures per second with a result that uh, we, we had a pretty good 500-foot pic picture. And, uh, and then Max says, now, do you think you can run this without uh, Irvin? Uh, he says, yes, yes, in his broken Russian. I, I think I can. So they went out, and I think they made about four more pictures in New York, 500-foot pictures. And uh, it was a little time before the lab work was done and before they, they had their rushes to run and so forth. When they saw, my goodness, these, they were just unreleasable because instead of turning the, the uh, camera, the, the crank of the camera, rapidly enough to give us 14 or even 12 pictures. He was going down as low as four and six. <laughs> and uh, they were they were just sick. It pretty near broke up the Keystone comedy business, frankly. Senate was all upset, and he came to me, and he says, Irvin, he says, I just have to get one release out of this. Will you come over? Can you arrange to come over and, and shoot another 500, when, our last one before we go, so at least we'll have one. So then I went over and and shot another 500 piece, which made the first Keystone release, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to go back a little bit, Mr. Willett, and yes. have you uh, tell us about production conditions at Imp. What was it like working in the studios? What was the appearance of the studio and the rapidity of about just general production details? And then... Um, Actually, it wasn't too different, except that our lighting in the studio was very inadequate. It was mostly overhead lighting. We had uh, all arcs, mm -hmm. and, and uh, there, at that time, there were uh, no Kubi-Hewitt lights, there were no incandescent lights. It was all arcs, and it made it very difficult. Everything seemed to be lighted from above. Everything made black eyes, shadows under the nose and on the neck. It was... Very un unsatisfactory, actually. However, it got by. Yes. And um, uh, when I look now at the still pictures I made, I don't understand how I was able to obtain as good of s good good lighting on the still pictures and to have such poor uh, motion picture photography. About how long did it take you to make a single film, uh, whatever it was, a thousand feet or? or uh, they were glass. thousand. Yeah. Yes, they were thousand foot dramas. Yeah. Or then, I think we worked about a week. About a week. Yes. 
Uh, how would the director? Well, I wouldn't want to say. Pardon yeah. me. How would the director work with his actors? Would did he usually? Uh, did he talk to them while the uh, the camera was? Oh running? yes. Well, we, you see, he kept a mega a megaphone, and uh, if we were in the studio where it wasn't needed, it was almost uh, continual uh, talking by the director to get reactions, mm -hmm. and cueing them, so that uh, they they would. Uh, he hoped would would give them the, the proper dramatic expressions that he ho that yeah. he wasn't trying to. Did obtain. he rehearse them and then then take? Oh them? yes. And usually Just one take was enough or not? Uh, we seldom, as I remember, it took more than one take. Mm -hmm. uh, film was expensive. Production costs had to be kept down. Our profits from uh, from uh, exhibitors was low. Mm -hmm. You couldn't afford to spend the money. Mm -hmm. Yes. Then what happened after the Senate experience? Uh, then I uh, joined my brother in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. No, I was then in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. That's right. Then I got. I was in the cutting room there, working uh, as well with the cutting. In the cutting, uh, we had to. It became my job to cut the positive down to take out enough film to allow for the titles, which ran maybe 150, 200 feet. And so I became quite conscious of cutting pictures. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mr. Ince would send in his reels, full reels, and we would have to cut them down to fit the titles and also to get them under footage enough so that they would stay on a reel. We couldn't put 1,000 feet on a reel. We'd have to make them 900 or 950 feet. What, sir, can you tell us a little bit about how you would go about reducing a reel? Where would you cut footage in order to get room for titles? Well, I would uh, run the picture run the picture as assembled mm -hmm. and uh, make my own cuts. Mm -hmm. We had a staff there to cut the negative, but I was the only film uh, positive cutter. Mm -hmm. I mean, in uh, what po at what points in the action would, would you decide oh, that you could dispense with some footage? Well, I think it's no different than it is today. You just run your film, it's an instinct, you realize this is dead film, this is good, this is vital, this will give us a reaction if we cut from here to here. Mm -hmm. There weren't very many close-ups at the time, practically none. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we broke our scenes and started with close-ups more, more with titles than with, mm -hmm. uh, with close-ups. Did you uh, follow any sort of uh, instinctual formula like trying to cut on action or on movement or anything like that? Well, or did that come later? Uh, no, uh, I don't know. My experience was that we'd always wait for a fast movement and try to match it if we could. If we were going to make a direct cut, we could make some very absurd cuts. Mm -hmm. If we could get a fast action and jump to another scene of closer or different scene, uh, um, part of the scene, different angle of the scene, by having uh, some rather uh, definite action mm -hmm. and continue that action, or a similar action, or some action that distracted the eye to the other uh, mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. I think we, we learned that very early, although there were a lot of cutters I know that never did learn it, and haven't learned it yet. Some of them. Mm -hmm. Then, after uh, doing uh, cutting on these Ince pictures for a while, then did you go out to the coast? Or, uh, well, or I started you, to yeah. tell you that. Uh, I wanted, there was a fair going on, I wanted to go out to the fair in San Francisco, and my brother must have let 
Mr. Ince know about it. And so Tom sent a wire in to Doc one time and he said, send Irvin out, I'll give him charge of photography. Well, I, I really hadn't earned that, but, but um, probably. But the, my experience had been, uh, after I left the laboratory, I worked with several other companies uh, in New York. I went to Reliance after I'd had my training with Max Sennett and learned how to run a motion picture camera in these two 500-foot pictures. I went and sold myself to, to uh, Reliance, who was then... Uh, what's the Oscar Apple? No, not Oscar. Was in charge. Oh, Richie was. Richie, yeah. yes. Mr. Richie was was very definitely impressed, and uh, so I sold myself. And he says, "How much do you want?" And uh, he, he said, "Well, we're paying our cameraman fifty dollars a week." I said, "Well, I couldn't come over unless I got a hundred. So they thought that I was pretty good, and uh, I got the job and through either good luck or instinct, I managed to keep it and was taken away from from uh, Reliance by, uh, by... Uh, was that Punch? Or that come in no, there? I didn't work on Punch. Oh, okay. I only made a drawing for oh, them. Mm-hmm. By the uh, Augustus Thomas outfit. Oh, that was All Star. All Star. Yeah. By All Star. And I stayed with All Star until uh, until Jack Reed and J. Cyril Dawley fo- formed Irita, and they took me in because I was a very close friend of Jace, uh, of um, Jack Reed, and it was uh, while we were working we we had our own studio we built our own studio up in Fifty Second or something Street. 56, say, up in the loft, and uh, we were doing very well. And we went to, from there we went to, uh, to, uh, no, the Bahamas. And um, made some pictures there, and I did, by the way, my very first directing when, when they had, uh, Dolly had too much to do. He sent me out in the meantime to make incidental scenes. That was they were my first direction. I dir- was director and photographer. Was that the Mary Miles? Mary Miles, Miles always Miller. in the way. Always in the way. Yes. Now I'd like to go back a little bit too to the time from the time when you began to work as cameraman for Reliance. You very early gained a reputation for even negatives. Would you tell us a little bit about this? Oh well. You see, I was sort of on my lo- my own. I didn't know too much, and I and the, the camera I had was a Moy, mm-hmm. and the Moy had a, an eyepiece in the back, and you you could look right through the pressure plate, through the film, through the lens, and it occurred to me that that I I could judge the light by stopping the lens down and watching the density on the film, which was then orthochromatic and, and rather yellow. And uh, I soon 
by making tests and so forth, made a practical uh, photometer out of it mm -hmm. by judging the density of the of the light on this film seen through the back I could make my films my negatives practically the same one after another in fact I was making dissolves visions all kinds of things without too much difficulty but it's only because I was never taught anything I had to work my own way out and that and I knew that I had to have a uniform density to my negatives if I were going to do any double exposing and so forth. And it, it worked. It was just mother of invention sort of a thing. And as pretty soon I found out I had a reputation for doing trick work. Tell us about the, some of the, how you achieved some of those split screen effects that look so good even uh, now. Well, Again, I, I, I didn't have any knowledge. I had to start, and a lot of people did, but there was some beautiful photography coming in from, from uh, Italy at the time, and uh, I saw lots of trick ph photography done very well, but I didn't know how. There was no information to be gained, and certainly it was more or less secret whatever information you had over here. So when we came to this split-screen work, such as dual personalities and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, why um, I just figured that if I put a soft mat out from the lens, about four inches on a 50-millimeter lens, that I would have a soft line. And if I, if I cut off the amount of light on one side, then that same point on the other side, if I, if I close that side off and pulled out the first side, it must give me the same density of photography. Yes. And it was just reasoning it, and I had no trouble at all. I showed no line, no difficulties, no anything. And I know that at, at that time, there were a number of cameramen trying to figure out how to get to the split screen without showing movement or without showing... Uh, a, a black line in between. Many of them had, I noticed that, that were competing, were, were getting a dark line in mm -hmm. the center. I don't know what they figured, how they figured it, but evidently I guessed right and they guessed wrong. While you were working for All Star, I think, did, did you go on location to do Soldiers of Fortune? We went, uh, we went down to Florida for the Soldiers of Fortune, mm -hmm. Miami, I believe. Mm -hmm. Was this where you uh, directed a battleship temporarily? Or was no, I was going? in Havana. Oh, I see. Havana and San Diego. That was with an, another company, and later with... with. Uh, was that one of millions? No. That was um, with Jack Reed's victory. Oh, I see. Where I had the battleship. We were in Guantanamo where that, uh, at that point, and <coughs> in Guantanamo... Guantanamo, the fleet is still there, I believe, but the fleet was working out of Guantanamo, and they had the first airplanes brought down the seaplanes, rather, and uh, they were Curtis, mm -hmm. Curtis flying boats. And uh, I made some, I made the first flight of a civilian out of San Diego Harbor, and we must have had 10,000 spectators down. They did give a little notice out, a printed circular, and there were mobs up there. And I, I know when they landed, when we landed after making this test 
we wanted to see if the camera if we could carry the camera so we put the camera on and carried it up in the plane I rode with it and came back and uh, uh, when we landed why uh, the uh, the men who were helping I was Lieutenant Towers then became an admiral later Jack Towers uh, Jack says uh, to the man, says, you take uh, Irvin first. So I got on his shoulders, and they, we were well out in the water because there was no way of docking the plane, the flying boat, and uh, they went out waist deep. And we, I got on their shoulders, and when I came back, this mob thought that I was the, the aviator. <laughs> and the applause that I got was the first and probably the only applause that I really felt. Uh, I was quite thrilled, and I was also embarrassed because I knew the plot was for Jack Towns and not for me. I think that one of the films that uh, J. Cyril Dolly directed uh, around about this time was called One of Millions, which was released through World. And didn't you make the prologue for that? Would you tell yes. us a about that? Well, uh, we wanted a prologue, and I, I was doing the titles then seems to everything worked back to titles with me. And so I figured out a plan for the opening, the main title. And I had the main title on Drape. And uh, when I uh, finished the main titles, I tilted to the bottom of the drape, and there I had blood, which photographed black, pouring down the steps under the curtain, under the drapes. And uh, it formed the word war. And as it, uh, I did it in stop motion, clear down the steps. I mean, the whole thing in stop motion, the title, everything. And then when I tilted back up again with it, why, uh, uh, we showed the, the, uh, the uh, tableau of the woman who had had her daughter uh, molested by the soldiers, and she'd been killed, and the blood which we saw came from her side and was presumably very effective. Uh, was it long about in this time, after doing this series of uh, pictures, that you again rejoined Thomas Hintz? I didn't rejoin Thomas Hintz. It was after all of this that Tom sent for me, I see. Yeah. and I went to the coast. Mm -hmm. This all happened before 1915. I got California in the uh, fall of 1915, and uh, I joined him at Innsville right away. He had his problems. They were multiple, but the main one that I came out for, and the first thing he asked me to do was to arrange his tinting room, because he was getting no... Uh, he, he wasn't succeeding very well in getting the tinting done at the uh, at Max Sennett's laboratory, where all of our prints were being made at the time. And so he asked me to work out tinting, and I got in a few tanks, simple tanks, and was I'd known enough about tinting from the laboratory in New York, so it was no problem. Mm -hmm. I tinted them, made him very happy. Mm -hmm. Pictures now, then, as you know, depended a great deal on the color of the, the tints to give the, the mood. Night scenes were tinted blue, the... The day scenes, if they were sunlight, were tinted in amber and so on. Mm -hmm. Did you ever use more than one color in, in, uh, in a single sequence or not? 
Uh, no. Two colors, I mean, we we got two colors only by toning and tinting. Mm -hmm. We used to use a sepia tone, for instance, and a pink, and we got a very or a sepia tone and a blue, and we got very effective results. I did toning too, by the way. I didn't mention that, but we we uh, we uh, used sepia tone and a blue tone. It seems to me we used uranium, our famous uranium, in some part of it. it was the formula slipped my mind now. How did you proceed in your toning? What did you do? How did you go about it? Well, you make your print, and then you make your baths, and you just dip them in these tanks. The tank only held one rack. Mm -hmm. Everything was on a rack at the time. Mm -hmm. Rack held about 200 feet. Mm -hmm. It was simple. There was no problems. After you, All you had to do was to see that where the film bent over the rack, that you didn't get uh, flashes or development other than, than even. Static? Anything? No, not okay. static. It was the development was different on the sides and on than on the ends if you didn't get your racks thoroughly covered or if you kept one out of the air, in the air too much. Mm -hmm. You see, as you'd move it up and down, the bottom of the rack would always stay in, but the upper part came out. Yes. And if you weren't very careful and not pull it out of the solution too often, you could vary the coloring or the... Mm -hmm density if you were making prints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, was it shortly after this that uh, you were put in charge of cutting again and that you had so many jobs running it at once? And well, uh, there, uh, there was a time that I had 11 different departments, mm -hmm. but that was sometime later after we had moved to, to Culver City. Mm -hmm. And there I had a building built, concrete building, it's still there. Mm -hmm. And I had 11, I think I figured I was the head of 11 different departments. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone in the picture business had had more than that and, and took charge of them, took care of them, and I did. Now, I think around uh, that the latter part of 1915, Mr. Ince was having trouble with a picture called Civilization. Is that correct? Tell us about this. Well, that's really a long story. Well, we'd like to have it. <laughs> uh, his problems were multiple. He'd made a picture, and it was quite weak, uh, called Civilization. It was a war picture. It was supposed to be a peace picture, actually. It had to do with the World War One, And uh, the... The picture brought in quite a, uh, an amount of a of religious element. In fact, every so often, Christ would appear in a dissolve and correct the movement of, of the leading man, the actor. And uh, they had their own electric plant at Innsville. It was alternating current. And they had Bell and Howell cameras, and Bell and Howell cameras had automatic dissolves that closed the shutters. The shutter kept closing and closing and closing. Well, when you're shooting in daylight, that was very fine. But they never did figure out why, if they made a, uh, a fade-out or a dissolve with the lights, why they had such bad results. Because there was one point in this when the shutters closed down where you would be, you would synchronize with the uh, with, with the uh, the frequency of the of the, mm -hmm. of the light. 
and you'd get a black picture and a white picture and a black picture and a white picture, or whatever it may be, and the things just jumped all over the place. Well, they'd spend an awful lot of money making these dissolved. Why they made so many of them and so all along and not and and not given some attention to it, I couldn't tell you. But when I saw the picture, they were all finished. Mm -hmm. They had all the dissolves in. The picture was complete. And every time one of these fades came in, they just shake and shiver to a point where, uh, on the lot, they'd see they would make some comment about, "Have you seen the jumping Jesus?" Do you think that was the origin of the expression there? I don't know that yeah. there that there is such an expression. If there is such yes, an expression, is. that's where it must yeah. have originated. Because uh, every time Jesus would come in, he would jump and uh, flash in, flash out, flash in. So anyhow, Mr. Ince was very much concerned, and um, he wanted me to take a look at it, since I was the head of photography, and advise him. So I looked at the film, and uh, we had had direct current in New York, so it didn't occur to me right away what caused the trouble. And so I went to uh, the man who was running the electric plant, and I says, what do we got here? And he told me, alternating current. And I took a pencil and flashed it across, and sure enough, it was, you could see the individual images of the pencil. I knew we had alternating current, and, and I was pretty sure I, kn I knew their problem. They had used a shutter for the dissolves. So I, then everything was, we kept all of our secrets as much as we could for our own benefit. So I went to Mr. Ince and I said, well, I think I can remedy this. And he says, well, if you can, this this just be wonderful early. So, um, I said, just let me have Fisher, and the leading man would walk, make a couple and see if you like them. So I read, uh, uh, photographed the scenes without their director, uh, who was then West, I believe, at that time. And um, uh, and I used the diaphragm. I had a bell camera, the same, in order to keep the, the uh, steady picture so there would be no movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was always careful to mark my film with it handled down so they would, that any movement that was there would be uniform. Uh, and uh, so I used the diaphragm mm -hmm. and made my dissolve with the diaphragm and set it with the shutter. And I showed it to Mr. Ince. He, he was just, he, was, he just thought I was his white-haired boy. And uh, with that, I had gained enough confidence then that I just about could do anything I wanted to. And he s said to me, Irvin, will you go over and, and uh, look at the picture and see what you what you can suggest? Well, <clears throat> I, I did look at the picture, and the only thing I could suggest to him, and I didn't want to do it, was he ought to make it over again. Uh, because there was, it, it just didn't have sufficient. I thought then, uh, well, I can make a, a prologue. And th those at that time, we used to have a lot of prologues and epilogues. I don't know what for. We don't have them anymore. But we had them then. Everything was told in the prologue. The whole, um, uh, mo the whole theme of the story was gotten over. 
And then in the epilogue was something to kind of make the audience feel good after it was all over. So uh, I thought, well, I can make them a nice prologue, an epilogue for peace. And uh, I can add that to it. But I don't know what I can do. There was another cutter on it, and he wasn't too friendly with me, Adele Andrews, who later became a director and became a very good friend of mine, a very, very good friend of mine. Well, I went to Mr. Ince, and I said, there's just, just nothing I can do, Mr. Ince. So I went about with my work, which at that time then had become the job of cutting another picture which they were making. It had to do with a submarine. And they used the same leading man, same costumes, same period, because they didn't want to waste the costumes. They'd bought them and, uh, for civilization. So, uh, uh, but they had another leading lady. I think I'm right on that. I'm pretty sure I am. So, um, in this picture, they had Enid Marquis. And uh, I, uh, I was cutting the picture, and having had seen the other picture, I, I, I just had an idea that this picture would, if I could take the, the, the real melodrama out of this second picture, which was made as a cheap picture after Civilization, which was made as a very expensive picture, probably cost $100,000 or $150,000, and this picture probably cost $25,000. I thought, well, if I could put that in there, I would, I might be able to do something about it. It was a thought. So uh, uh, I didn't say much about it, but I, 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 uh, went over to Mr. Ince and I made a suggestion and he says oh no he says oh no he says we couldn't afford to do that we've spent uh, we've already spent some twenty five thirty thousand dollars on that picture we couldn't do that we'd lose the picture so I didn't say any more about it until uh, I uh, had gone home and when I got home I the papers carried the story of a big fire civilization burned up of course that was a pretty big headline and uh, I found out it was the picture civilization that the positive of it that had burned up in the cutting room and so the next day when I went out strange called me at the office and he said Irvin did you hear what happened yesterday I said yes too bad he says well uh, says, I think I'll take Dell off. Will you take over the cutting of it? I says, uh, well, if you get a complete print made of all the, of our negative, all the negatives, so I can recut the whole thing, I will. And it, it, it wasn't with any great pride that I took the job away from Andrews because he was... He had really had my position with Mr. Ince before the before I arrived, and I didn't I didn't want to create any en enmity, but I, it was my job to do it, and I did. So uh, with that, I, the thought came back to me about putting in this other picture, the heart of it. I went to Mr. Ince again, and uh, he wasn't interested. He says, I'll tell you, you tell Jack Reed, and Jack Reed was his assistant at the time, and if you can sell it to Jack Reed, by, we, you can go ahead and do it, and I did. And uh, Jack, who was a very close friend of mine, 
said that he thought it was a good idea. And uh, I cut the picture. I made a few close-ups to replace, as I remember it, the uh, leading woman that for what we didn't, what we we uh, had to change of her and the rest of the picture. I made a prologue and I made an epilogue and uh, with the dissolves that I had already made of of uh, of Jesus, why uh, we came out with a with what was considered quite a successful picture, photographically, and I guess dramatically too. Certainly, it was artistically nice. And then, what happened to the remains of the uh, submarine film? Well, Tom Ince was. Uh, <coughs> Uh, 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 in spite of everything, was a, uh, a very frugal director. He, he, I think he had scotch in him. And he was crying still about this submarine film, which had had the heart taken out of it. And he, he wanted to know what I was going to do about it. And I said, well, Mr. Insover, I made you a picture. I put this in here. Aren't you happy? He says, I'm very happy about that. But he says, uh, the office wants to know what's become of our $30,000 picture. I don't know. I'll think it over. And I came back with the idea. I said, why don't we make it a, a, a Zeppelin? So I just replaced the submarine for a Zeppelin, and the picture was was completed and very satisfactory. I used some trick work in it, miniature top and uh, full-life bottom of the scenes with the people in it. And at that time, it got by. You couldn't do it today. But then it was, they gave you, they, they allowed for a lot more then. The, the people were more, I think, mentally more dramatically minded. Today, we pick out details, and they didn't. What happened to the film? How was it uh, marketed? Well, when Mr. Ince saw it, he said that this, uh, this, is, this is, I don't know what to do with this picture. I said, how much do you have in it? He said, I think he said $33,000 or $4,000 in it. And uh, I said, well, why don't you release it? He says, I can't. It may hurt the sale of, of uh, civilization. There's, there's a similarity there. Same actors, same so on. And I said, well, I don't know what you're going to, what are you going to do? He says, I think I'll try to sell it. And he did. He sold it to an independent releasing organization. And... Uh, when they got it, they built it melodramatically, big Zeppelin's last raid, and so forth. And the thing became quite popular with the theaters. And uh, th then Mr. Ince was again upset because he, he had sold it for just about what it cost him. He didn't lose any money, but he didn't make any money. And I heard later that they made about $500,000 out of the thing. <coughs> What did it mean, Mr. Willett, when it said that a picture was supervised by Thomas Ince? Could you explain this a little to us? Well, the supervision was what we would call now a, a producer or executive producer. Supervision of Thomas H. Ince meant that he would read the script, that he would call the director in and talk with the director and see what his idea was, and uh, then the director was to make his changes and he probably wouldn't read the script again, but he would come back, he would go back to Mr. Ince, and he was a very understanding person, and uh, could quickly grasp what you were talking about, and if he liked the changes, he'd say, go ahead, 
and you probably wouldn't see Mr. Ince again until the picture had its first cut in the, in the cutting room and then he wanted to see it. Mm -hmm. And he made his suggestions about uh, making the uh, changes or cuts or what, whatever was necessary, adding this or adding that. And he was a very capable, dramatic person. He knew, he knew his drama very well, and he knew pictures, too, very well. Do you think that his part in production, as you've described it, was an important one? Oh, very vital. He, he seldom made a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't do it, with a, as was later done, with tremendous costs. He did it economically. Mm -hmm. He didn't have us make over a lot of things. He, his advice was to correct what we had with what we had, mm -hmm. not to go and spend a lot more money to make it. I forgot to add one thing about civilization, which I think is, if I've, if I offered anything at that period, which is of no value now, but which at that period became a very important element, I introduced illustrated titles at that time. And I, I, I know I was the first to give elaborate illustrated titles. Mr. Ince allowed me to set up an art studio in which I had three or four artists working uh, right along making illustrations for titles. And uh, it helped to carry the story. It helped to increase the, the production values. We could build big sets with chalk drawings and pastel drawings and uh, not cost a great deal. And uh, it, it also... Uh, kept the titles from being just titles and just a drag, and it seemed to carry the photographic picture. Titles originally, as I saw them, were a break in your film. You would uh, you would uh, run picture, and then it would become blank with white letters, and, and the whole thing shocked me. But by putting these <laughs> illustrations in, the shock was a great deal less, and what proof of it was that all the studios began to use illustrated titles. Would you tell us a little about the contribution of uh, Victor Schertzinger to, to uh, civilization? Well, without Victor Schertzinger, I feel we wouldn't have had anything in civilization. Victor Schertzinger was called in, and, and I, would, I would enjoy very much hearing, hearing civilization's music again as uh, Victor Schertzinger wrote it. it simply delightful. He, he was, without a doubt, one of our great composers. True, like all composers, they use some of the past and some of the original and something new and mix it together again, but the, his, his compositions were good. They were very good. They were very effective. His marches were stimulating marches. His, his, his uh, lyric, his... Um, uh, uh, we didn't. We couldn't have used the lyrics at the time, but I mean, his melodies were uh, simply delightful, and as 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 you can record in his many s popular songs that he wrote later. I have three notations here. I wish you'd discuss, Mr. Willett. Uh, the first is prism. The second is finder, and the and the third is footage down. Well. Uh, at the time that I entered the photographic end of the motion picture business, there was little or no attention paid to the camera. A camera was bought, and you were supposed to use it, or 
If you didn't like it, you'd buy your own camera and you'd use that. There, they had uh, actually the only way they could tell the amount of footage is that the cameraman used to count the turns of his crank, and he'd tell you at double that, and that was your, I mean, uh, divide it, and that was your footage. Because there were eight pictures to a crank turn, and two of them made a, uh, a complete um, uh, foot. There were then 16 pictures to a foot. They're 24 now, as you know. Yeah. Uh, well, they aren't 24 pictures to a foot, but I mean 24 pictures to a second. There were 16 pictures to a second then, and a foot was 16 seconds. I get a little confused. So, um, uh, I put on a, a meter that I bought that I, 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 um, I think it was used on some adding machines or something, but a simple little little meter. And with that, I could count my my crank turns, and uh, I didn't have to keep. I could take care of things. I could uh, watch the camera. So, in addition to that, I added onto the camera uh, a quadrant on the side, and I put a a rod in the lens on the lens barrel. And by marking my lens for the footage, which was easy enough to do in a half a day, you could mark the lens easily for the focus, I was able to move my focus. They wondered why my pictures were so sharp. The reason they were so sharp and uh, was because I would follow my principal interest with my, my uh, lens on the quadrant, keeping changing the focus, if the, if the actor, the principal actor, drew grew forward, I moved my lens out till it was it, it reached the footage that I guessed that he was on, and there was usually a mark which I could reach positively, and in between you guessed it. And if they went way back in the set, we would move the, the lens in, give a longer focus. Uh, okay. So um, with that, I was able to work in much less light because I didn't have to stop down so far. Originally when I went to business they were stopping down on interiors from 5, 6 to 8 and F. And I was shooting my pictures with a lot less light eventually with a lot less light interior by working at the top of 5, 6 down to 4, 5, 3, 5. And uh, on my close-ups, I nearly always used a, a, a more open lens because it seemed to give a, a better effect on the close-ups, of of especially of the ladies. And uh, as far as the prism is concerned, I had a Bell & Howell camera, and that had no means of, of carrying out my plan to judge my density through the film. So I had a prism made by uh, Gertz in New York, and I cut a hole through the side of the Bell and Howell camera. I cut out the, the pressure plate, which was solid. I cut a hole in that and fitted the prism in. It took a lot of work, but I'd look through the side, through the finder, through the, the, into, the into the camera, 
and through the prism and into my film. And that's why I judge my... I could, I could, two things. I could make very accurate inserts with this because I could set just exactly where I wanted them. And also, I could tell the density of the light on the film in the manner which I explained before. And it gave me, uh, made, made photography much more simple for me. It was, took the guesswork out of it. And uh, to a great extent. And then, uh, you ask about the finder. Well, I put my finder on a, uh, on a hinge at the front so I could move the back out to allow for the parallax so that I could set my finder at a given point and be sure that I got the same, although the finder was on the side of the camera, that I got accurately, or very quite accurately, the same as I was getting in the, the, on the film. In the lens and uh, I had that marked also by footage so I could move my finder back and forth according to uh, the guest position of my actor and uh, in, in that way I would keep my pictures centered I think I was the first one to do that also the uh, another thing that I did on my ground glass I used to mark all my lenses. I put rings on my ground glass with a pencil so that I could tell whether I was working with a 50 or, or a 40, 50, 75, 90, or whatever lens I might be using. And I could uh, easily then uh, follow my, my, my people according to the lens, which was on a turret. I didn't have to change my finder. I just turned the turret and used my head to know that I was working with a 75 millimeter lens, and I dropped the 75 millimeter pencil mark and, and uh, went on shooting. I think during this time, uh, you've directed a number of films for the INS organization, including In Slumberland and The Guilty Man and The Law of the North with Charles Ray. And then you did a pair of films which uh, remain pretty celebrated. The first one was Behind the Door, and the second one was Below the Surface. Now, Behind the Door, I believe you said you worked from no script. Is that correct? Well, no, that isn't quite correct. When I uh, received it, it was handed to me by Ince. There was a script. Mm -hmm. But when I read the script and I read the magazine article from which it was taken, the magazine story, uh, the script had lost all of the punch of the story, in my opinion. So uh, I went back to my old system. I made a prologue, and I made an epilogue, and added that to my story, which was not in the original script. And then I went to Mr. Ince and asked him permission to let me shoot the picture from the magazine article, which I was either in the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's, and... Uh, that's what I use for my script. That's the only time I've made a picture without a script, and probably it's my most successful picture, <laughs> because I caught the author's spirit, and it was quite good. Which is the uh, in which of these films did you find yourself uh, trapped in a submarine? Tell us about that. Ooh. <laughs> well. <clears throat> Is that behind the door? 
I'm I'm pretty certain it was behind the door. I see, time has lapsed, and I made a number of submarine pictures, but I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was behind the door. We had made arrangements in San Pedro with the with the government with the Navy to use a submarine. It wasn't the modern submarines that we have today. It was quite a small submarine, but I believe it was one of the S models. Now a Navy man would know what I'm talking about, but I don't. Uh, anyway. Uh, we had full use of this, and uh, among other scenes that we wanted was this submarine firing a torpedo. Uh, to get the torpedo, picture of the torpedoes, I, I sent the, my brother was then also, who also was a cameraman, my brother Edwin was a cameraman, and he was working with me uh, as a cameraman on that picture, in addition to... Uh, um, Joe, J.O. Taylor. Mm -hmm. So uh, there were, and I think, yes, I operated a camera. We had three cameras because we could shoot this thing only once. They were letting a torpedo go, and there was always that chance of not picking it up, so they didn't want to waste any, and we didn't want to shoot it twice. So we went out, well out from San Pedro Harbor where we didn't pick up any land. Uh, out beyond the breakwater, and uh, the captain, who was then a lieutenant, uh, on the uh, was on uh, sitting in the conning tower, and he gave instructions below by voice. But we had our men planted. I had no, it wasn't J. O. Taylor then. It was it was Eagler. Paul Eagler, we made this particular scene. Maybe Taylor was working on it. Maybe this is another picture. I'm not, I'm confused. But <clears throat> there was Paul Eagler, my brother Edwin, and myself. Uh, I didn't have a camera. I was directing. My brother was out in the bow, way out on the water. Paul Eagler was sitting up, was up on the uh, conning tower. And uh, uh, my... Um, and I was on the deck somewhere. I don't know just where. It's been a long while ago. Anyway, the order was given to drop the the uh, submarine to uh, to the level of the deck in the water. So they sunk it down to where we were to be uh, at just a wash. The deck was just a wash. We'd lashed down our cameras, two of them, one in the bow, as I said, and one back farther to get a uh, more distant view of it, and we were much higher up on the conning tower, so we missed the other camera somehow. And uh, so uh, we, had, we the, it got pretty rough. I, I remember I was out there, and I got washed off the bow, and I was working on it, and I caught it amidship. I couldn't swim, but... Uh, the waves are pretty high, and I caught it amidship. Then my brother became nauseated, and so they took him down below. And I went out and took his camera on the bow. <coughs> then, as uh, they ordered the, the... We were all ready, and they, when the captain, who was then a lieutenant, ordered the, um, the torpedo fired, he just fired one torpedo. I learned later, and uh, 
when he fired the torpedo, we started cranking, or prior to it, when he gave us the signal, and we shot the torpedo, and as it did, the ship began to sink, the submarine, and we kept going lower and lower and lower. Well, I didn't know what had happened, because I was on deck, but we went underwater. I couldn't swim. I held on to my camera. I ground till the thing went underwater. And um, uh, it kept going down. Then the next thing I knew, when we were under there, Eagler came swing, swimming over the top of me. I didn't see what happened to the others. <coughs> well, I didn't know what to do. I was in, definitely in a quandary. The thing kept going down and down, and I could see the big light spot, which was the sun and seemed to be all gray, gradually condensing, condensing, and condensing until it became a spot of sunlight. And I knew we were pretty low, and the sun disappeared, and it was just gray, and I couldn't, I was holding my breath, but there was a limit. I grabbed hold of the guy wires and pulled myself up to the top of the conning tower because I figured if I could get on the conning tower, that'd be the first thing out. There was nobody else on deck. And uh, I climbed up the periscope because that was the highest thing. And uh, I began to, to see black spots. When the black spots appeared, I thought, I either got to let go or uh, <clears throat> or try to swim or something. And uh, then I tried the something. I tried taking an exercise of bringing the water, salt water, and it doesn't irritate you like fresh water, bringing the water into my nose just as far as I could without choking me and then pushing it out again. And in that way, circulating the air that was in my lungs. And I succeeded and puffing back and forth the water without choking myself or coughing or, get, or getting in trouble, and my black spots cleared up. And uh, as I was going on in this manner, I saw the, the, uh, the, the uh, spot narrowing and narrowing, and finally I could see the sun, then it spread again, and pretty soon, bang, we came out of the water, and I was on top holding on to the conning tower. Well, <clears throat> I was pretty brave then, so I went around, opened the cameras to let the water out, which had accumulated, which had flowed into them to keep it away from my film in the, in the magazines. And uh, the, then I learned, I saw them, oh, I saw them picking Eagler out. He was uh, was completely unconscious, and I saw a boat, a little boat, which is the which accompanies the submarine. But originally, uh, I had seen it go out a distance to pick up one of the boats. At least went out to pick up the torpedo when it when it uh, exhausted, and they could bring it back, tow it back in. And uh, I saw him picking him up, and I just wondered what had happened because there were several on deck. And I soon learned that um, when the, uh, the submarine started down, the captain uh, was, at a, was unable to get back into the vessel. 
into the submarine, into the conning tower, and it was left in charge of an en ensign who was learning how to operate a submarine. <laughs> and uh, he had ordered, uh, oh, he, he was in charge, and, and uh, he, uh, they, when the first water came in the conning tower, it automatically closed the hatch. They did get a wash of water down inside. They were frightened, too. And um, that closed the hatch, but it also filled the hatch full of water. And I found out when the man fired the torpedo, he didn't put an additional torpedo in the, in the compensating tube, with the result that one tube filled with water without ejecting a torpedo. The other tube filled with water, but the water was balanced by the loss of the torpedo which went out of the ship, which gave them extra weight. And when they got the, the weight from, from the water coming in the conning tower, that gave us extra weight, so they went on down. The, the depth uh, gauge registered 32 feet. That means over the, the, the periscope. And I had gone down 32 feet with this thing, and, uh, when, and they saw me... Uh, in the periscope, they, somebody saw me on the vessel, and they said, there's a man aboard. So the, when the vessel started down, this ensign who was in charge cried out, uh, both motors ahead. Now, with both motors ahead, we would have gone right to the bottom and we would have been stuck in the mud and probably everybody on shipboard, including myself, would have been lost. But there was a boy they called Sparks. He ran the radio and uh, he he was very quiet. I never heard him say a word. Never spoke. He was so awfully quiet and very shy, apparently. But when the ensign called out both motors ahead, I'm told, he spoke up and he says, Counterman the order, blow your forward tanks. And the boy who was the boys who were in charge, the man went, knew that the, the second order was the correct one, the advisable thing, so they took the, the Sparks orders and they and the boy who reached for the to put the switch into the motor hadn't gotten it in because of the tilt of the submarine, which was quite down by the bow because of the torpedo water, bumped his head, and he was knocked more or less unconscious, never got the switch in. So when they blew the forward tank, that gave us lightness on the forward, on the bow, and the thing shot out of water like a bullet, they tell me. <laughs> and uh, so this boy, whom I met, by the way, many years later on a tramp steamer as assistant uh, as the uh, head mate, the chief first mate on this, this uh, freight steamer, uh, saved my life. I think uh, not long after this, Mr. Willett, you made a trilogy of Zane Grey films for Paramount, which was exceedingly successful. And I think these were The Heritage of the Desert, The Wander of the Wasteland, and North of 36. Is that order correct? Or well, North, North of 36 was first? not one of, uh, of Zane well, Gray's. I beg your it was a Emerson Huff. Yeah, Emerson Huff. But I, uh, of that, 
I guess they were fairly successful, but the one that interested me most was the one that I had the most to do with, and that was the first Technicolor picture that was being that was to be made by a studio, and I sold the idea to to uh, Paramount, and Mr. Lasky gave me privilege to use it. My brother was then uh, second in charge, or at least one of the two in charge of, of Technicolor, and uh, I had the the opportunity then of making a Technicolor picture. It was up to me to make it within time. I made it in six weeks. We made, we had uh, five different uh, exterior locations and the studio work. And we did get a very satisfactory two-color Technicolor picture, the first. Did, did you shoot that on location, Mr. Willett? Five locations and a, and a, uh, and studio sets. Mm -hmm. And wasn't uh, wasn't the uh, the leading uh, female role originally to have been played by B.B. Uh, Daniels? Yes, uh, it was supposed to. It was cast with B.B. Daniels and Jack Holt, but B.B. read the script, and uh, in reading the script, she didn't think the part was big enough, and uh, she refused. Told Mr. Lasky she didn't want to do it. So Mr. Lasky called me and to to his office, and he says, "What are we going to do?" What can you do about this? I said, I don't know. There's a script. You read it. But I had then married Billy Dove, and Billy was not getting along too well at that time. And I thought, here's an opportunity to put her ahead. And, I, and he said, what are we going to do? And I said, why don't you put Billy in it? And he said, well, she hasn't had a great deal of experience. To, but, well, he said, what she says, so little to be done. All right. So you call her over. So uh, they did. And she got the job. Well, being my wife, I had promoted. So uh, we shot the picture just as it was written. But what the, they didn't think about was, were the titles. And on every title where it referred to the girl at all, even though it was principally a picture of desert men and so on, every time the hero, Jack Holt, referred to the girl, I would dissolve into a beautiful close-up with a beautiful hat and dress and makeup and so forth of Billy, the heroine. And the result was, when the picture was shown, that everybody spoke of how beautiful the picture was and how beautiful Billy Dove was in color. And that uh, gave her her second start, let's say, and in pictures. Uh, her first carried me back a little ways. I think that was in All the Brothers Rebellion, wasn't it? Yes, I was the director of that, and, and she was brought out by Metro to uh, from the stage, mostly. I think she had done a short, a small picture, a picture of, in New York of some kind. And I don't remember now just what the picture was, but she'd had some motion picture experience, and she came out and did All the Brothers Rebellion that we had for a leading a Lon Chaney. I wish you'd speak a little bit about working with Lon Chaney, with whom you'd also worked in the false spaces as well as in all the brothers of Elliot. Well, Lon was prop man for me in uh, false faces, and uh, he played also played a part in it. We doubled him prop man part, and uh, Lon was uh, oh such a hard worker. He, if, if I have any criticism of Lon Chaney, is he overdid his work. Worked too hard. 
You also worked with Houdini in 1919 in a film called The Grim Game. Would you speak That's a little about him? Well, uh, Houdini and I became quite friendly, and uh, he said, I think, Irvin, you're a better magician than I am. <laughs> we did a few camera tricks that pleased him very much, and uh, he told me quite a little of of his life, which is another story and shouldn't be brought in at this point, but he was quite a, an interesting person, quite a, quite interesting, and, uh, and and had a tremendous memory. I know I was in New York in a theater where he was playing. He was playing then the the um, he was disappearing elephants at the at the uh, big uh, hippodrome, and. Um, Incidentally, in my earlier days, I photographed the Hippodrome show. I think I'm the only one who did photograph the motion pictures of the Hippodrome. Anyway, I... I don't remember. No, I don't think that was it. I know it had a lot of the girls going in the water and so I don't remember what the picture was, but I made a picture. It was more or less a... a uh, it had little or no story to it. It, it was mostly spectacle. Spectacular review. Yeah, spectacle review, spectacular review of it. But um, uh, in, in, I was at the Hippodrome, and he was having this uh, disappearance of an elephant and so on, which was a mechanical trick. All of his things were really mechanical tricks. They weren't as magic as they were clever. And um, he spotted me in the audience without knowledge that I was in New York. And I thought that was phenomenal. And he called the audience's attention to me as his director and so forth, which had a, a lasting effect on me. That, that he was quite a, quite, a, quite a very interesting person, quite a clever person. I think uh, through the later 20s, you also continued to make films. And then uh, in the early... 30s, in the early sound period, did you make the Isle of Lost Ships and also work on another for, submarine picture? Yes, for in the Isle of Lost Ships, that was a submarine picture, uh, and uh, I helped in the writing of the script, which reminds me that I'd like to add another thing which I did for the motion picture business, if I may be, if I may. Uh, the motion pictures, when I came to them, had scripts written on what we call legal size paper and they were joined together at the top and they were the most awkward floppy things to try to carry when you were working on the stage or exteriors they were even worse because of the wind and so forth very difficult so I convinced Mr. Ince that it would be much smarter to use letter size paper and have them bound on the side as a book is bound and today, they're still following my plan, which I inaugurated with comments many years ago. Uh, to go back to Isle of Lost Ships, uh, that was some of our first sound uh, pictures. And Warner Brothers had the records. They were, they were using uh, big uh, glass cages put the cameras in, and they would use usually two or or three cameras and two or three cages to get the different uh, uh, cuts for their 
close-ups, medium, and their full view of the picture. So uh, uh, I watched them for a while. Slaughter, a man, Colonel Slaughter was the in charge of. He was from the army. He was in charge of sound, and he was a very particular man. He was very proud of his position. He was very jealous of his work, and he had worked out these cages, these glass soundproof cages. So when it came my time to go to work on my picture, I just couldn't see. I worked for one day in these damn boxes, you'll pardon me, and uh, they were hot, they were difficult, and they were awkward. You just didn't have any freedom at all. So I just abandoned the boxes and threw uh, a blanket over the cameras and uh, worked individually as we had always done with with the silent cameras. And, uh, oh, the word went around. Oh, they had, Jack Warner had a man out to see me want to know if I was crazy. And I said, I may be crazy, but you wait till you see your rushes, and if you don't like them, you fire me. Well, I finished the picture. I finished the picture, that is, all but the miniatures, which I was to make, and because they had a, a, uh, a miniature department, they thought the miniature department ought to make the miniatures, but they didn't know how to direct it, and I was very disappointed in the picture in the real end because so much depended on how the miniatures were directed and photographed. I did the first or second day of them, and then they thought they could go on with it, but uh, it was not... As it, it, they left out a lot of them that were that were planned in my script. I believe that uh, not long after this, you made a, the greater part of a film uh, released by Columbia called Submarine. Well, it, uh, Harry Cohn, who was who my brother put to work with Imp, and uh, Jack Cohen, actually Jack and Harry. Jack was was the older, and Jack was the smarter in many ways, and certainly the nicer of the two. Jack Cohen asked me to, to go out and make a picture with Harry. And I came out and made the arrangements to make a picture called Submarine. And uh, came out with Harry and started to shoot them. Uh, it was a Jack Holt picture again. Jack was drinking badly at that time. I had a little difficulty with him, but I was trying to cover for Jack, and Jack wasn't cooperating 100%. Harry was was uh, heard some through some grapevine that Jack had intended that I should divide uh, the production with Harry, and uh, while I hadn't considered it myself seriously, it seems that that caused some friction between Harry and Jack, and. Uh, they had been making then only small pictures. They hadn't gone into the feature-length production then, as I remember. And so I was trying with a camera, and with one of the nicest cameramen I've, and the, and the most intelligent cameramen that I've ever had anything to do with in the picture business, John Fulton. I tried to. Uh, make a picture equivalent to what was being made in the major studios where we then had optical printing and uh, trick work and printing, which didn't have to be done in the camera. We didn't have any of that equipment, so I was doing it all in the camera with the help of, of 
John Fulton, who was a very capable photographer and knew what he was doing. So we, we gave them what looked like a major studio production for little or nothing and without a great deal of equipment. But uh, all the time they had a little Italian boy by the name of Frank Capra, and he was getting $500 a week, and I was getting $1,500 a week, so this upset Harry no end. Why this man was sitting around that price, and it looked like the picture was going to be a great success. So he had his $500 a week man sit on my set, and he did, and ask me questions and so forth. And then just as I had about five more days' work to do, <coughs> And in some manner, uh, I, ha I had arranged, or they're really their uh, location department had arranged for us to go to San Diego to shoot some ships in the sea, which we needed in the harbor. Capra had learned that they were going to bring in a carrier, plane carrier, into San Pedro. So between Harry's desire to get rid of me and between his enmity with Jack and between his, his anxiety to get the credit on his $500 contract man, why uh, uh, he decided to take me off the picture and make me only the producer of the picture and to put, uh, and put uh, Capra on. Capra was willing to play in this very... Uh, nefarious plan of theirs and uh, so Harry had as I say we'd had some trouble with Jack so Jack had been drunk and I had to work around him and and uh, I didn't want to say anything but uh, Harry called me and he says it doesn't seem that you can handle Jack Holt and he said, besides that, we just ran all your film. We, we can't use it. We've got to make it all over again. It's terrible. I said, oh, how are you going to say that? Because I've seen it. And he says, well, we just can't use it. So I said, well, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to put Capri in. I said, well, I can see the whole picture now. So I said, there's nothing I can do about it. And uh, they did change the end. They had a good ending. I don't think it was as good as the one that I had planned. But it was very spectacular because they had, which was then very new, a flat top and the airplanes and the use of them to put on the finish. And they did a, they did a very good job. But when the picture was completed and we put it out, I noticed that they not only used uh, the film which would fit into the, that I had made, all the film which I had made to fit into the change in the story, they actually had scenes that I had made which had nothing to do with the new finish, uh, but they used uh, them also. <laughs>